Let's talk a little bit about science and creativity. Your training is in the sciences, and sometimes there's a sharp distinction made between the arts and the sciences. I think there's a lot of creativity in the sciences. It's just that it doesn't appear in galleries. I think creativity, uh, a lot of creativity for humans comes out of some problem-solving phenomenon. Yeah. And maybe I'm making the term too all-inclusive for some folk, but um, it suits me because nature is producing a lot of creativity all the time. Can't be stopped. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his distinctive creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is episode number five, The Portrait of an Artist as an Old Man. Here's Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen, your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. I first bumped into Wes's work more than three decades ago, and his ideas have had a profound influence on my thinking about society and ecology. My conversations with Wes in this podcast will explain why and give you a chance to see how that mind works, how Wes has cultivated the art of seeing small and thinking big. These will be conversations about big ideas that come from Wes's deep roots in the prairie, where he spent most of his life. Good morning, Wes. Good morning, Bob. Today, our episode is titled The Portrait of an Artist as an Old Man. <laughs> uh, I hope you don't take offense at being called old, or for that matter, Hope you don't take offense at being called an artist. Yeah. We're going to talk today about creativity. And, of course, you're not an artist in the traditional sense. Your career has not been spent making art. But we're going to explore how everyday life is creative and, in, in a sense, how we're all artists. So let's start with this idea of creativity. It's a little hard to define. Uh, most people think of creativity as involving imagination, the capacity to see something in a new way to make connections in new ways. Uh, but rather than trying to define it, let's start with a slightly different question. Where do you think creativity comes from? Well, my first and easy answer is simply from everywhere. Something that wasn't there a moment ago is there now. There's a litter of kittens. There's an asteroid that hits the Earth wipes out the dinosaurs and makes possible for the few small mammals to take off in an evolutionary sense. Then there is just, say, the bonding of two gases, hydrogen and oxygen, to yield water, wetness from gases. 
We call that emergence. I think creativity can't be stopped. The city of London burned around 1664, 56, somewhere in there, but it came back as a different kind of city. And you know, how about Michelangelo's David, the Mona Lisa, you know, the more what we would call professional art? Well, that comes from cultural art. Uh, In my view, what one sees when looking out the window is artwork that's hard to beat. So um, anyway, <laughs> I, uh, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Well, let's go back. When I asked you where you thought creativity came from, you immediately talked about the ecosphere, about the, 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 the larger living world, what sometimes people call nature. Most people think of creativity as a human characteristic, but you went immediately to the ecosphere. Why is that? Why does your thought about creativity start with what is beyond the human? Well, because I think that's the most obvious. <laughs> you know, you look out and the world is constantly unfolding and bringing novelty. Yeah, there are awful things that are happening, but creativity seems uh, unstoppable. Uh, on the part of the ecosphere and, for that matter, the cosmos. So humans just picked up on that. Uh, we like to create, too. Do it in our own way. Yeah. And um, there's something deeply satisfying about that. You often talk about the importance of humility, about limits of human beings. And I was just wondering if your instinct to look first to the ecosphere, to ecosystems, has something to do with your concern about humans getting too uppity, uh, too convinced of our own specialness. Is yeah. that uh, reading uh, too much into it? No, I think the, uh, not, not reading too much into it. I mean, look, we look out in that, whether it's a tropical rainforest or whether it's a coral reef, or whether it is a never-plowed native prairie. And what we see is uh, more than we can comprehend, really. It generates an emotional jolt as we study or just ponder or look at uh, all of this that's out there in the world. And I think that uh, the human is just a created creature that creates. And, um, (laughs) you know, this is, seems to me, the way it is of the universe. I don't take anything for granted. The only thing I take for granted is that change, and usually, in an interesting sort of way, comes, and um, we find it um, not necessarily surprising every time, but a certain amount of amazement to it. Yeah. So, in talking about creativity, though, let's, let's get to human creativity. What are the most creative things that you've done in your own life? If you were going to make a list of things that you think required the most creativity, what would you put down? Well, I would say the most creative thing that um, I have um, come up with is the idea of building an agriculture based on the way nature's never-plowed prairie works, which features the ecosystem concept. 
that took pulling together a few ideas. Yeah. You know, I'd been reading the General Accounting Office report on soil erosion. Seemed to me it was about as bad. Uh, this is back in 77. About as bad then as when the Soil Conservation Service was formed. And, you know, I thought, how can this be? And then I took my students here at the Land Institute on a field trip to the Consa Prairie. And here we could see no soil erosion beyond replacement levels. And uh, coming home and thinking about it. And um, once I got home, there was a brown grocery sack. And I um, started thinking about what humans depend on from plants. And, um, you know, there are some plants that we uh, eat the seeds, some plants that we eat the fruit, some plants that we eat the roots, and so on. And I came up with uh, four different combinations. So you say you sketched this four by four matrix, which helped you see the need or the possibility of perennial grains and polycultures. You say you sketched that on the back of an old grocery sack. Yeah. Now, is that true? <laughs> That's true. That's true. There's some plants that are herbaceous, uh, some that are woody, some plants that are perennial, some plants that are annual, some plants that grow in polycultures. Some plants uh, tend to grow separately or they're monocultures. And thinking about those four combinations, four times four is 16. It could be reduced to 12 because four of those combinations involved woody uh, annuals, and there's no such thing as a woody annual. So out of all of that eventually came my book, um, New Roots for Agriculture. And uh, that was uh, the result of a background in plant taxonomy and also remembering my major professor back at North Carolina State University. Professor Ben Smith that wandered into my office and said, uh, we need wilderness as a standard against which to judge our agricultural practices. Then he just turned around and walked out. You know, this is like 10 o'clock at night. And uh, there I was at the microscope and there was this announcement. Well, that sort of stayed with me. And so as a consequence of all that, some 44 years later, we're developing perennial grain crops. And um, finally, uh, even though I'd said it's going to take 50 to 100 years to develop an agriculture based on the way the prairie works uh, as counter to the annual monocultures, you know, it's taken a lot of breeding, a lot of work dealing with everything from soil to the insects, the pathogens, and so on. So I would say that was probably the most important creative activity that I've engaged in. Yeah. The development of new crops, mm -hmm. perennials rather than annuals, grown in polycultures rather than monocultures, which may turn out to, you know, feed humanity at some point in the future. Uh, quite an accomplishment. Most people think about that as science. It's agronomy. It's plant breeding. But you immediately put it in the, the realm of creative, that the idea itself was a product of creativity. If you take away any one of those things, reading about soil erosion, going to the prairie, your, your professor at North Carolina State, 
Do you think you would have had the idea? How, how much of this is a kind of fortuitous coming together? Or do you think that idea would have come out of you eventually anyway? I've wondered, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I just know that all, all those categories were there. And uh, I do know, it's been a question to me, why, why did we not develop perennial grains to be grown in mixtures you know, at the ecosystem level? I mean, the Russians worked on perennial grains. This is way back in, in the late 30s and 40s. Um, certainly the ecosystem concept, uh, so far as I know, wasn't on their mind. There's nothing published on it. I, I don't know. Why is it that uh, we didn't start that journey earlier? Uh, why wait for 10,000 years in a way? Um, because clearly it's the annual grains that have been the primary problem of agriculture. And um, yeah. we did the best we could, but we got dependent upon those annual grains. And we just kept on keeping on and soil erosion accumulated, civilizations rose, civilizations went down, and so on. Uh, we, we needed perennial grains right from the beginning. And I wondered why in the history of uh, agriculture, mm -hmm. you know, way back 10,000 years ago, why did our ancestors not develop perennial grains? And I think we've only come close to answering that question in a very short period of time. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about science and creativity. Your training is in the sciences, and sometimes there's a sharp distinction made between the arts and the sciences. And a lot of times people think, well, the arts, that's where real creativity comes. And science is just a kind of more rational, almost kind of plotting enterprise. In your experience, both in your work in the sciences, as well as watching others in the sciences. Um, is creativity essential to the sciences? Is, is that as much a part of it as it's a part of art? Oh, I think so. I think there's a lot of creativity in the sciences. It's just that it doesn't appear in galleries. Some of it's too big to put in a gallery. <laughs> you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, for instance, is a product of creativity, a work of art for its time, uh, and it had an aesthetic uh, consideration associated with it, not just something big enough to hold cars. Uh, that took a lot of, of uh, thought and creativity. I think engineers, mm -hmm. a lot of engineers come up with ways of doing that are quite creative. I mean, I see it, you know, you can even see it in your smaller operations on the farm, mm -hmm. how to solve a particular kind of problem. Uh, I think creativity, uh, for a lot of creativity for humans, comes out of some problem-solving phenomenon. Yeah. And maybe I'm making the term too all-inclusive uh, for some folk, but... Um, it suits me uh, because nature is producing a lot of creativity all the time. Can't be stopped. Yeah. So. You mentioned uh, engineers, the Brooklyn Bridge, as a, an expression of creativity. It made me think of, of the house you live in, which you, you built pretty much by yourself with the help of friends and family. And one of the, the things 
I've enjoyed watching and listening to you in that house is pointing out how you solved problems as you built a house without blueprints, without a contractor, you know, pointing up to a corner and explaining it. Now, when you were building that house, was that creativity as well? Well, I don't know. I wasn't thinking I'm creative as I was building that house. I was thinking about getting a house built and not having much money, and where am I going to get it? To, uh, how am I going to get this thing built? I suppose one could say, that, yeah, it was involved some creativity. I did several things that were rather unconventional that lots of friends like to note. I mean, for instance, I didn't have enough money to buy rebar, a uh, reinforcement bar uh -huh. to go in the concrete. And I didn't even have enough money to rent forms for the concrete. And so um, I built my own forms. They broke. <laughs> I, I also used old bicycles and lots of just metal that I stuck down in there that was junk. And that was my rebar. I did end up having to rent some forms and finish it off because my forms were yeah. uh, just too weak. And uh, I got to native wood run through a sawmill, and I had, well, I, I was able to put together a 36 by 36 foot house pushed back into a bank and uh, with a flat roof and uh, be in out of the weather. And so, uh, yeah, I suppose it was creativity, but it was also, most people would say, not just unconventional craftsmanship, but poor craftsmanship. I had a motto <laughs> that if it has to be done right, I can't do it. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, my kids and I, we tore down a granary, for instance, that supplied wood, pulled the nails, and uh, we put it together. Well, that's what you do mm -hmm. if you don't have money, which I didn't. But it was yeah. exciting. I mean, it, there was something about it that, that was satisfying. My son has become an outstanding carpenter. And he said the first day that he was working as a carpenter on the way home, he told me this just recently. He's about to become 58 years old. He said he knew that that's what he wanted to do, is be a carpenter. And he has been. He's got a background in ecology, did his undergraduate work at University of Kansas. And, you know, he could have gone on and become one of those professor types. But he chose carpentry as satisfying work. And uh, consequently, he's kind of an artist himself. So uh, it's a matter of finding something that is satisfying to you that is at the same time essential in some way. Yeah. Before we, we leave the, the question of the house, it might be unconventional, but it's still standing more than four decades later. Um, so I guess that says something. But you know, often people think of creativity, again, associated with the arts, or let's talk about architecture. They look at a, you know, fabulous, famous house. Those kinds of projects have a lot of money behind them. Um, money that rich people have to pay architects to design creative houses. But you're talking about creativity that comes out of scarcity, yes? 
Do you think there's a relationship between scarcity and creativity? Well, there can be. There can be. Not always, for sure. But, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I saw uh, down in Oklahoma, I saw a brilliant arrangement by a man who had chickens and fish and an elegant design in which the chicken manure dropped down into the fish and the fish would eat it and so on. And I said to him, how did you come up with this? And he said, by being raised and having no money. Being raised and having no money. And so he was a creative guy. And I think that there is something to it. The certain satisfaction that comes from doing without and also seeing potential, uh, you know, and a scrapyard. I like to go to the scrapyard and uh, I'm usually taking something there, but I see uh, pieces in the scrapyard that your mind begins to wonder about what you might do with that. And uh, if you're not careful, you're going to end up buying more scrap than you brought in to sell. But uh, I think scrapyards are one of the great places for increasing the imagination about possibility. And as you pointed out, as we go into the downpowering, as we start to learn to live with less energy, scrapyards might be more important than ever. Oh, I, I, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I see too much stuff that's just being thrown away. And I just, at that time, I usually think I wish I had a very big barn that I could take that stuff <laughs> and store it for somebody <laughs> to use. I'm sort of doing that right yeah. now. I'm going over my property and I'm getting stuff in out of the rain, wood in out of the rain. And uh, I find it satisfying. Uh, I'm not doing it because. I've been a part of a movement that says I ought to be saving and recycling. There's something inherent about the nature of the materials. I think E.F. Schumacher, when he came here in 77, it was March, and I had a whole bunch of junk around because I was <clears throat> in the midst of putting together the Land Institute and the buildings and whatnot. I bought, I don't know, 210 or 15 or 20 patio doors cheap. And I didn't know I was going to use them. But I figured they'd come in handy for solar collectors or whatever. And I asked the great man, Fritz Schumacher, you know, is it really proper to be taking the leftover from civilization? And he said, uh, after a while, never mind. Materials want to be used. They will show you how. That was his Buddhist mind at work. Well, that's for sure. Materials want to be used. <laughs> I would say materials are there available to be used, and you will find out how to use them. <laughs> but it's yeah. all right to put it in the Buddhist way, too. I don't object to that. <laughs> so the creativity there is then the interaction between the person and the materials. Right. And that lumber you, you're salvaging, you don't have a 
a use for that lumber today. Is that correct? That's right. And then I was talking to Wendell, Wendell Berry, about that the other day, about I find myself spending time working on that, and I will never use it. And very quickly, he said something like, it's the thing to do, and he said, it's sane. Now, I thought, well, that's an interesting use of the word there, but think about it. Somebody look at me, people doing that would say, the guy, good grief, he's going to be 85 years old. He must be crazy or insane. But Wendell already had the term to counter it by calling it sane. Mm-hmm. You see, that, uh, what is it? <laughs> what is it in us to be saving things? Well, what is it in us to be planting a tree that we will never harvest the fruit? Um, that's one of the mysteries. And that's, it's one of the beautiful yeah. mysteries, by the way. Yeah. So you're, you're saving lumber that's been outside and it needs to come inside and get stored properly if it's going to be useful in the future. Right. You don't have any use for it yourself. You don't even know if one of your children or grandchildren no. will have a use for it. No. It's just the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And if there is an auction, which I hope there isn't, I hope some family members will find it useful, you know, it, it probably won't bring much. It probably won't bring much at an auction. It's certainly not worth the usual kind of time that money rewards, you know. Yeah. You just do it. I, I suppose you would say it's existential. There's an existential reason. And now you're pretty quickly into the realm of mystery. I introduced this by saying, you know, that you're really not an artist in the conventional use of that term, but you have had an art exhibition. It's what you call your art without ego. And there was an exhibition there in Kansas that put your pieces out. Can you explain uh, to people listening what you mean by art without ego and what kind of pieces were in that exhibit? Sure. I have a sawmill, and I haven't been using it much lately, but I like that sawmill. You, you have a trunk of a tree, you put it up on the sawmill, you run off a slab, and you turn it over, and you now have a flat spot. You start sawing up that wood. And uh, what is a lot available now, because of the ash borer, the ash trees are dying. Some think they'll all die, but looks to me like some are hanging in there pretty well. But so I had, there was an ash tree that had gone down and I sawed it up. It had a length of about seven feet uh, of a more or less straight run, quite a ways from the bark actually. Uh, It's about a foot wide and seven feet long. You go down the line, you see where the borers have penetrated that tree. You know, a lot of stuff (laughs) I do, I have to put in the category of humor uh, so that, uh, you know, well, you don't want to take yourself too seriously. But this one piece I have hanging on the wall, six feet long, a foot wide, got a big hole. I said, well, there's where the big bang happened. And then uh, I see galaxies being formed and planets and 
you know, there's stars up there. Uh, you, your imagination can go to work and say, my golly, this is kind of a miniature piece of the universe. And you can just start pointing out the little pieces that are there. Your imagination goes to work. Well, it satisfies me. And I use that in the exhibit. I took other things as well. But everything I took, there was not one thing that I had done other than maybe, um, oh, in a case I would put some oil over the piece just to, you know, sharpen it up a bit. But I'd run them through the plane mail, uh, my planer. I also have a pretty good planer. Uh -huh. And um, I hung them up. I didn't do anything. And one of my favorite pieces, which is just, well, like I have two of them, beautiful, beautiful pieces that uh, hang on the wall. But it shows the workings of those creatures that are giving elegant designs. And how are they doing it? They're just getting a meal. They're just getting a meal. That's why I call it art without ego. They don't know what they're doing, but the beauty is there. And so uh, I think there ought to be a kind of a genre, art without ego. So the, the ash that you've been planing and, and seeing these works of art in, the creature is an ash borer. That's an insect that is actually... Uh, damaging the tree. Right. Correct? Killing the tree. Killing, killing the, the tree. tree. And in the act of killing the tree is creating a kind of art. Right. But the art is not shown until I run it through the sawmill. And then the yeah. art becomes amplified when I, you know, run an oil over it. And, uh, you know, it brings out the wood. And also yeah. running it through the uh, plane adds to it all. But I'm not doing any of the design. The design is there. I just uh, save that design and display it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have a lot of that hanging around in my office. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at one, two, three, four. I got one old branch of a tree that is loaded with shelf fungi white shelf fungi. All I did yeah. was pick that branch of the tree up and I came in and I gave it standing by standing it up near the window. And there it is. It is uh, one of the dominant features in my office. I had nothing to do with that, but the tree, the limb had died or the tree had died and the fungi went to work on that. And there they are, these shelf fungi up and down and that is you know that's over six feet tall is it fair to say that your creative contribution to that is to see the design so that that piece of ash where you're talking about you know you see the story from the big bang forward the story of the universe unfolding you can imagine another person looking at that and seeing nothing but some ash borer marks right so is it your creativity to see the design in nature? Is that a fair statement? Well, it is maybe my, uh, my concept of beauty or my, my appreciation of the diversity and the beauty thinks, um, huh, uh, that ought to be saved.
And uh, it's hard mm-hmm. for me to throw pieces of wood out, even though right now uh, I'm burning a lot of wood in my wood-burning stove, a lot of yeah. wood. But there are a lot of little pieces that I've sawed off on there, and they all hold a certain charm. And they're just yeah. a certain charm. You look at the, the circles, you count the rings, and uh, I've got a big old basket of a whole bunch of little pieces that have been sawed off the end of Osage orange fence posts that I just like the way it looks. Well, <laughs> you know, probably I'll one day throw all those in the fire and burn them. But uh, yeah. for now, there they are. <laughs> yeah. And you can dig down in that little bucket and pull up something that you remember putting there, and, and it's still got a charm to it. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about these designs, I was thinking how somebody could suggest you're, you're making too much of this, that that's not really art. And then I immediately thought about Jackson Pollock, you know, the famous drip paintings, oh, yeah. the abstract artists. Some of those go for tens of millions of dollars, I suspect. Yeah. Um, if I gave you a choice between your Ash Borer Art Without Ego and a Jackson Pollock, which one would you find more creative or more interesting? Well, more interesting would be the Ash Borer. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll give you another little uh, <laughs> something to think about. I've run this by several people, particularly uh, artists. I mean, I have art friends, and I've run it by maybe four or five so far. There is a prairie of one acre of never plowed native prairie, and there is the Mona Lisa. We're given a choice. You either plow the prairie or you burn the Mona Lisa. Which do you do? And uh, that's the kind of question a lot of people don't want to confront. But I say, hang on to the one acre of never plowed native prairie. If that Mona Lisa, they say, is irreplaceable, well, it's more replaceable than if you plow that and then try to get that prairie back, that one acre back. You may poke the species in there that were there. But it is somewhere between 1.8 million years and, say, 400,000 years old. And it was the ice pushed down a lot of that land, that ground, from Canada and parked it, let's say, near Topeka, near where I grew up. My nephew owns an 80-acre never-plowed prairie. There are stones there. And those stones came in with that scraping of the ice. And there that prairie is sitting there through all interglacial periods of the Pleistocene. Probably all interglacial periods of the Pleistocene. Mm. All right. How old's the Mona Lisa? <laughs> it's not very old. And we also have a lot of photographs of it. So do mm-hmm. we need the original Mona Lisa there? What kind of egocentrism is that? That material on that prairie, including the stone, that's there before Homo sapiens, before the genus Homo came into existence. 1,800,000, maybe, you know, that first part of the Pleistocene. 
So what is it that we are doing when we have all this fuss about the Mona Lisa? Is there not a certain amount of egocentrism in that? Just look at us. Well, if you have the broader perspective, you will say, burn the Mona Lisa, but don't touch that prairie. (laughs) And uh, I like that discussion Uh, that doesn't happen. (laughs) You try to have that happen, and uh, people want to move on. (laughs) It's an uncomfortable question. Sure. And, you know, the other question is, who was more creative? Leonardo da Vinci back there in the 16th century painting the Mona Lisa or the glaciers? that advanced and retreated, and in the process of that, created that landscape. And gave us the fertility of our agriculture today. Yeah. 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 You and I have talked about this um, concept of God, and um, Mm -hmm. God comes into the discussion many times, usually without definition. And, uh, you know, several years ago, I happened upon the late Gordon D. Kaufman, who was a longtime professor of divinity at the Harvard Divinity School. And uh, Kaufman thought it was most productive to think of God today as creativity rather than as a creator. This is the kind of thing that brings the theological values and meanings into alignment with modern discoveries by the cosmologists. It may be that it is through creativity that we connect in a way that we have been unable to connect. Look, the point is the universe seems to be all about process, where emergence is the rule. If we think of process and the creativity as a result of process, then all is God. Not some three-dimensional thing like a male sky god. Instead, it's a universe where there are novel, complex realities that arise from simpler realities through what scientists call emergence. You know, I've been thinking about, you you take a sperm and an egg, and they unite, and a process gets underway never to return to a former state. For once the complex realities emerge in the organisms, they cannot be reduced backward to some former time. That prairie, if we were to plow that prairie, it cannot be reduced backward to some former time. You know, any more than a frog can become a tadpole. You see, in this whole creative process, it's all, it's emergence. So with God as emergence or creativity, then um, this whole problem of anthropomorphism and anthropocentrism, Kaufman says, you know, they're eliminated uh, from the concept of God. So one of the major reasons, Kaufman has said, that we seem to have trouble with our God talk is that we are not acknowledging that this whole unfolding universe is still unfolding around us all the time. I think it's all tied in, that the art, the appreciation of the creation, wherever it presents itself, My golly, think about our various emotions. We have love, we have 
peace, we have hope, we have gratitude. Kaufman says that all of those, you know, are tied into um, this emergence idea. Anyway, there is so much for us to be celebrating all the time. And it includes as branches that have fallen down on our path in a walk in the woods that bring us delight ever bit as powerful as the best in an art gallery. That, that stopped me because I was thinking of uh, how true that is and how rarely we recognize it. I'm living now in the, in the mountains of northern New Mexico, so this is very clear to me. Every time I step outside, I'm seeing, in a sense, things that are more beautiful than anything that could ever be in an art gallery. Yeah, and I'm not objecting to art galleries. I mean, people like to create. And in fact, I think people can't really stop creating if they allow themselves to uh, move beyond raw, strict materialism. Now, there's nothing wrong with being materialistic and artistic at the same time. Now, I can't see that the atomic bombs are beautiful. I can't see that power lines uh, going across the landscape are beautiful. I'm not wanting to say that all is beautiful, except, except, what if one of those power poles comes down, say, in an ice storm? And I happen to be around, and I hook it onto the back of my pickup with a chain, and I bring it home, and I run it through the sawmill. I may find something absolutely beautiful in there, which I considered ugly on the landscape. So a lot of this has to do with, of course, our sensibility. And we have to be careful that we don't go off on some kind of a fundamentalist rant about all this. I'm just saying that the beauty is available and that uh, the finding of it is, um, well, <laughs> this is another little thing. We see it. We appreciate it. Now, it does not appreciate us. And that is the way it is with this world. We may love this earth, we appreciate this earth, but this earth does not care for us. And we say, oh, my golly, I want the earth to care for us. Well, hold it a moment. Think of it as a gift. It's a gift in which we are able to create our own purpose. Instead of thinking that God gives us purpose, let's acknowledge that the universe gives us the opportunity to create purpose. And now, what? You can't ask for more. You have uh, a couple of times said to me, either during, uh, you know, a walk in the prairie or after, you've said, why is this not enough? That as you're immersed in the beauty and the creativity of the world, it seems to me that routinely you come back and ask yourself a question. Why is this not enough for the modern world? Why is the modern world always scrambling to create theme parks and casinos and cruise vacations? What's your answer to that question? Why is this not enough for us as a modern humans? I think the partial answer is perhaps we're too caught up in the daily necessity 
to keep on living. Uh, I'll tell you a little story that has come to me in the last year, an idea that's come to me in the last year. I've sold all the cattle on the pasture. And how many times I've been over that small acreage where the cattle were on the way to the woods to take a walk. How many times I've been over that territory in the last 40 some years. And I am now seeing that the relief in the landscape has somehow become accentuated. My sensitivity to that relief in the landscape has caused that landscape to be more variable than I had perceived it previously. And why is that? I think part of it has to do with, I am no longer caught up in the utility that I was engaged with, with the livestock there. And also, I am not involved in building in the way I did in the past. But it's almost as though those little bumps and those little hills have grown. Now, it's my perception that has changed. And therein lies a great mystery. And perhaps it has to do with the problem of engagement in some economic enterprise, some economic end. Do you mean that as long as you're you're looking at something with utilitarian eyes, that those cattle were eventually going to be either on your dinner table or you would share them with others, that it kept you from seeing the landscape in a deeper way? Is that yeah. what you're saying? My mind was not on the relief of the land. Now, I was paying attention if I saw a little gully developing and I knew how to stop that. But that was still utility. But uh, I just wonder. I've talked about this in other places. About the, It's in my little essay on the loss of Eden was a bargain where once I began to prepare to build the house, or once I began to build the house, the kind of feeling I had about the place went away and another feeling took over. And uh, there's something about the utility mind and the engagement that uh, requires a certain sensibility that's different. So the land that we, the, the house we were talking about earlier that you built, you first visited that land when there was no human structure on it, and you saw it as beautiful. And after that house was built, it changed in your eyes, but is it still beautiful? Before the house was built, I rented a backhoe and a front-end loader, and I went to work to dig the footing for the foundation. And I would still go over and sit when I was resting uh, by the river, and that feeling that I had before my material engagement would not return. It could not return. So, I mean, just as soon as I effectively took possession with my engagement, something flipped. And I, I end that little essay by saying that uh, given what got built out of it, I sometimes think, uh, well, I called it the loss of Eden sort of metaphorically, loss of Eden, but I also considered it a bargain. But that old feeling was gone. 
Well, now I'm feeling that maybe walking across this landscape in which the utility is no longer a big part of the equation, uh, that allows me to see the landscape in greater detail and somehow amplified. Yeah. The landscape stays the same, but your understanding and awareness of it changes. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. You know, this coming together of the natural, that is what is there before human interaction and, and the human, as I said, I'm, I'm here in northern New Mexico, and, and when I step outside my door in the morning, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains are in the background. But our neighbor, who used to run an, an auto dealership, when he closed that dealership, he brought his stock back. <laughs> and the field next to ours is full of old cars and old boats. Um, it's a kind of salvage yard. Now, when I look at those mountains and I see those cars and boats in the foreground, it's all beautiful to me, in a sense. Um, some people would say, well, those, those scrap cars and those old boats, they ruin the view. But to me, it's all beautiful. Does that, does that seem like I'm just making the best of a bad situation, or does that make sense to you? I can understand how you might feel that. And I know other people that could, too. I would see it as... One more example of the Industrial Revolution, uh, leaving stuff stashed out on a hillside. I would be in a judgmental attitude about it. But I can also understand yeah. people having uh, a memory conjured up that um, hits something else in our brain that it causes it be recorded as beautiful and satisfying. Yeah. I wonder if it might be, I like my neighbor. And my neighbor likes his yeah. cars and those boats. And so yeah. I like the way they look because I know Steve likes them. <laughs> right. And that's good uh, enough, you know. And that is good enough. Yeah. I want to come back to the, the religious question. So anybody who's listened to previous podcasts knows that you come out of a Protestant tradition, a Methodist family, but that you've left behind some of the traditional dogma of Christianity. So you don't believe in a creator God in the traditional sense. Yet I've heard you many times use the term creation to talk about the world, to, to talk about the world as creation. And you do it with a kind of reverence. So when you say, you know, we are here in creation, what does that mean to you? And why do you hold on to that term even though some other religious terms you've let go of? This is where I think this idea of emergence is God. And that means you're not able to come up with anything like a statue of a God or come up with any sort of three-dimensionality. It's all yeah. flow, all change, all movement. Nothing holds still. I thought about some of those stones upon my nephew's prairie that could have been there 1.8 million years ago. Those stones are also involved in process. There is a wearing away due to the ordinary elements of those stones. So there's nothing holds still, and that is creation, creating. 
Uh, that's what I mean by it. Uh, maybe I've got too large a, a definition of what constitutes creativity. I don't think we can avoid it. I don't think we can avoid being participants in the creation. Um, if we were to think about it harder and adopt the process approach, acknowledging that nothing holds still, nothing holds still. I mean, those atoms are busy even. Then that is a different kind of um, sensibility for how to get along in this world. Well, thanks, Wes. Looking forward to our next podcast where we're going to talk more specifically about the books that you and I have coming out and talking about that process. So okay. uh, thanks for another rousing conversation. Wes Jackson's book, Hogs Are Up, Stories of the Land with Digressions, will be available in March from the University Press of Kansas. And Robert Jensen's book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability, which summarizes Wes's key ideas over the past half century, will be available in February and is also published by UPK. Thank you for listening to Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just search for each of their names online. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our partners, The New Perennials Project and The Land Institute. For more information or to make a donation, go to landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Bob Sly, Robert Jensen, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Titicacaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films.